everyone. This is Caleb, and I'm so grateful you've decided to spend a few minutes today here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Brian Zod, and he has recently released a brand new book called When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. And we're going to talk a lot about what do you do whenever you're going through a questioning time of your faith or you find yourself in a, uh, a deconstruction mode of your faith and you're trying to pick up the pieces or trying to reconstruct uh, the faith that has fallen away. And I'm I'm so grateful that we were able to um, have this conversation. Uh, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Quarter podcast, I do want to let you know about two things. And uh, really what we what we talk about today really hits on uh, one of the one of the core things that we believe here in the Learner's Corners podcast. And it's this is that we truly want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And if you've grown up in a faith community, one of the most terrifying things that can um, that can that can happen if you are uh, someone who is part of really any faith community is whenever you start to question your beliefs. And it can be very scary because you're afraid, man, I'm going to maybe lose the people that I love or I'm going to be um, or people are going to respond with judgment or why don't you believe more or you're not believing enough or if you just if you had greater faith, then everything would be okay. And that stuff just really isn't helpful whenever it comes to it. If you've ever been through a period of uh, questioning uh, your faith, it just isn't very helpful. But what we want to do and what we want to create here is a safe place to have those difficult conversations to be like, man, I'm not entirely sure what I'm believing or my beliefs are, are in flux or I'm trying to figure that out. And so that's the first one. And the second one is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, from anything and from everything, regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100% on said thing. And so... I've invited uh, Brian to come on the podcast and just talk about, you know, deconstruction and hit, which uh, his book gets into a lot when everything's on fire. Now, I'll tell you about Brian here in just a second, but I did want to let you know that one of the things that I uh, listen to to prepare to prepare for this is, you know, I'll typically listen to, uh, you know, a, a, an interview or two about um, about the person that I'm, I'm coming on just to get a better idea or even just think of uh, better questions than that. And one of the interviews that I listened to, which I really enjoyed, is from Preston Sprinkle. And, and uh, Preston has become somebody that I listen to a lot. He's been on the podcast before. Um, but I'm going to link to the conversation that him and Brian had, just because I feel like it gets into um, into some things that we don't talk about on the podcast. Here's one. I really enjoyed that. Now, let me tell you about Brian. So Brian is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, known for his theologically informed preaching and his embrace of deep and long history of the church. He provides a forum for pastors to engage with leading theologians and is a frequent conference speaker as well. He is also the author of several books, such as Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, and The Nuisance read the newly released book when everything's on fire now without any further wait here is our conversation
Well, Brian, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Caleb, it's good to be with you. Where are you? I don't know where you are. In, in Ohio, like around Canton, Ohio. Yeah, like the Football Hall of Fame, Ohio. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. That <laughs> I've, type of I've been to the Football Hall of Fame, so... Yeah. yeah, they're uh, they're remodeling it right now and doing a lot of construction of it. So when that's complete, you'll have to come check it out again. Sure. All right. Well, thank you for having me, Caleb. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm so looking forward to, you know, you've written this incredible, incredible book called When Everything's on Fire. And it is such a timely book, I think. I was just scrolling through Twitter uh, today, and it seems like deconstruction is just something that is just being talked about more and more. Um, and again, maybe it's just for, for the past few weeks or so, um, but I would just be curious to, to your thoughts of, is that something that you're seeing as too? Or, or any thoughts on like why it's becoming yeah. so prevalent right now? I, mean, I have lots of thoughts. Yeah. In one, in one sense, I don't, I'm I'm afraid people are going to think I just sat around and thought, hmm, what's the hot topic? And I'll write on that. That is not what happened at all. Um, here's, I don't know where to start it. There's so much, but I'll just yeah. jump in. Um, I had a dramatic encounter with Jesus Christ as a teenager a long time ago. I'm 62. And I'm talking about something when I was 16, so a long time ago. Um, but Overnight, I go from being the high school Jesus freak to the high school, high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak, even though I still like Zeppelin. And uh, by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry. It was basically a music venue for the Jesus music scene at the time, but it eventually turns into our church. That was 40 years ago. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary, the first Sunday in November. So how about that? Um, but as I entered my 40s, I began to have this sense of unease. I wasn't having doubts about Christ. I was having doubts about the Christianity that I knew, Christianity American style. And I went through a very public, very wonderful and awful <laughs> transition where, where I became much more serious about what was going to inform me theologically and how that was going to inform my preaching uh, I became something of a critic of Christian nationalism, even before it was as bad as it is today. Uh, in, in doing so, I was able to lose a thousand members of my church. Uh, that was very painful, but, you know, it was, it's part of the journey. So I have this, I know what it's like to, in midlife, rethink your faith. So, so I have that experience. I mean, uh, you know, that's what I've done. Okay, so let's jump up a little further. Um, Perry and I, for the third time in 2019, 2019 being the third time, walked the Camino de Santiago. This is a medieval pilgrim route that the, the most popular route today begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, crosses the Pyrenees, and 500 miles later, you arrive at Santiago de Compostela, Spain. To walk that has been life-altering for us. It's been healing for our soul. Uh, my best self is my pilgrim self, I do believe. And there's just something about your life being reduced to the blessed simplicity of carry everything you need on your back and walk 12 to 15 miles every day, ever westward. 
And so we were doing this for the third time. Somebody, the other day I was doing a radio and somebody, how, how in the world can you do that? I said, you pastor for 40 years and, you know, then you can do stuff like that. Uh, so uh, when you walk the Camino de Santiago, it's a bit like a time machine because you are aware because of the, the ancient churches and it's been walked for so long. I won't go into all the details, but you are very aware of an earlier epoch where faith was at the center of society. Now, I'm not overly romantic about the medieval period. I know it's challenges and problems and shortcomings and all of that. But nevertheless, there was a time when faith was at the center of society. And in the fall of 2019, I found myself thinking about how that is no longer the case, that we really have reached the end of God presumed. And now uh, faith in God will be increasingly a countercultural act. And I understand that people are losing faith. And reacting in anger is completely wrongheaded. Being angry at modern people for losing their faith is kind of like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague. I mean, something has just happened, and it's genuine, and it's real. And so I was thinking in the fall of 2019, if some of these people that that, that sincerely, genuinely, they say, you know, I'm, I'm finding it hard to believe what I believed as a child. Or at some earlier point in my life as a Christian, I believe, you know, X, Y, Z, and I'm finding it hard to hold on to that. What would I say to them? If I could walk with them a day or two on this Camino, as we're just walking, and thinking and talking, what would I say? And I was musing on that for about the first two weeks. So we were 200 miles into this walk, and we arrive at the end of a 15-mile day at, uh, what's the name of that town? Um, Castro Haris. And got into our lodging and I was sitting outside on this terrace and I was just still musing on that. And I picked up a little, I had just a little tiny notebook I kept with me and I wrote at the top of the paper when everything's on fire. Cause I thought it feels like everything's on fire and people are trying to hold on to the faith and it's imperiled by the flames when everything's on fire. And I, and I wrote, a series of things I would like to address that become the 11 chapters of the book. You know, I've written a lot of books, but, and, and lots of times they, you start with one way and it goes a completely different direction. This one wasn't that way. It really stayed true to its original inspiration. And so that's where it was conceived. It was on the Camino thinking about people in late modernity, trying to hold on to faith and what a challenge that is. I didn't really get to start writing it until well into 2020 because of just travel and getting back and all that. And so I'd already entitled it when everything's on fire and then everything was on fire. <laughs> and so anyway, that's where the book came from. I wasn't, I wasn't trying. Uh, I mean, I just, I almost feel defensive here. I was not trying to write a book on a current hot issue. What, what current, you know, buzz issue can I address? No, it was really from my heart. And, and by being in a very contemplative place on this long pilgrim walk that that was born. So that's where it comes from. Yeah, That's probably more information than you wanted, but that's where it comes from. No, that's great. I, I love hearing the story behind that because I think it adds some such greater context uh, to, to the whole conversation as well. And so, like, I guess, like, kind of what I'm hearing that you're saying is that 
you know, are we maybe just experiencing, because you said, you know, hey, uh, faith really wasn't at the center, at least from, you know, your perspective at the end of 2019. And then it's two years later. And it's like, are we just feeling like the the aftershocks of that? Or like, why? Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I, I completely agree with Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche called it. He foresaw it. Uh, and you know, I just I just want our listeners to understand that when I'm when I'm quoting Nietzsche and talking about Nietzsche, I do not do so as one who just Googled him and read his Wikipedia page, you know, and <laughs> I'm I'm thoroughly immersed in Nietzsche's work and have been for yeah. a long time. And I like Nietzsche. I mean, I like him in that he's such a good writer. He's a good, I mean, not all philosophers are good writers, but Nietzsche was, and he's he he can hold your attention and he's passionate. And I agree with him, what, 75% of the time. Now, the 25% that I disagree, I think, is is crucial. <laughs> but I do agree with him a lot. And I love, and early in the book, I give his parable of the madman, that you have to understand that Nietzsche is saying this. I think it's 1882. I'm not 100% sure on that, that he publishes the madman. And it goes basically like this. On a bright, sunny morning, a madman in some village in Europe comes into town holding aloft a lantern on a bright Sunday morning, saying, whither is God? I cannot find God. I am seeking God. Where is God gone? I can't find God anywhere. And this draws a crowd, and the villagers are laughing at the absurdity of a man holding a lantern on a bright Sunday morning, claiming that he can't find God. And then he says, I can't find God. Where is God? I'll tell you where God is. God is dead. And we have killed him. And that elicits even more laughter. And then the madman says, oh, I see I've come too soon. My time is not yet, but it is coming. And then he smashes the lantern and goes in the churches and sings a requiem for God. Well, Nietzsche is our madman. And Nietzsche, you know, he's very perceptive, very prescient. And he was also a, a pastor's kid. I always got to throw that in. I think that's not to be overlooked. Mm-hmm. He was the son of a Lutheran minister. And Nietzsche, when Nietzsche says God is dead, uh, he doesn't invent that phrase. Um, Hegel had used it. He would have heard it in one of his, in one of the uh, Holy Saturday hymns in his father's Lutheran church, where it means something different altogether. What Nietzsche means by it, he doesn't mean, it's not, it's not just simply an argument for atheism. Nietzsche is an atheist, but, but that's not his point. His point is there was a time when God occupied the organizing center of Western society, and that is no longer the case. But in the, with, the, with the madman saying, oh, I see, I've come too soon, it's Nietzsche's way of saying, I perceive something that you mostly don't see. Most of society doesn't see what I see. But I see it, and I see that soon Western society is just going to move on without God. And how does Nietzsche feel about this? Well, he, he thinks it's time for this bold move because he is a caustic critic of Christianity. And he critiques Christianity mostly for what he calls its slave morality, which is his way of critiquing Christian love. He doesn't believe love exists. Paul Ricoeur calls Nietzsche, Freud, Marx, the masters of suspicion, and they're all suspicious of the same thing. They're suspicious of the reality of altruistic love. 
Mar well, Paul Ricoeur would say that Marx is saying that, no, it's all about money. Freud is saying it's all about sex. And especially Nietzsche is saying, no, it's all about power. And the emphasis on loving your enemies and loving the least among you is a way for the weak to manipulate the strong. He's suspicious that this kind of love really exists. And Nietzsche says it's time to make this bold leap and move on without God. But he is not cavalier about it. In fact, he's anxious about it. He thinks it should be attempted and it should be done, but he's fearful because he knows there's one of two outcomes. He hopes for what he calls the rise of the Ubermensch. This is the Superman. These would be men and they would be men because he wasn't, you know, <laughs> he wasn't egalitarian, put it yeah. that way. Uh, he, wanted the, he wanted the rise of men as great Greek gods themselves that would have a will to power and they would cast aside any restraint of this slave morality of Christian love, and they would will greatness. And this is his hope for the Ubermensch. Well, there was a group that took him seriously. And not all philosophers agree on this, but enough do that I'm confident in taking this position, that uh, whereas the Nazis do not reflect, now there, there, there wasn't anti-Semitism present in Nietzsche, although his sister was, but that's irre irrelevant. Um, Nietzsche would not have been in favor of what the Nazis did, but you have to give the Nazis credit. I don't know if that's the right word for taking Nietzsche seriously. I mean, they read Twilight of the Idols, Genesis of Morals, Beyond Good and Evil, Antichrist, etc., as their canonical texts. And they said, we're going to live as Nietzsche's image. And they did. And they turned out to be monsters. And, um, you know, and this is where I have, you know, I have a lot of compassion for Nietzsche because I do love him. But I, I just want to say, dear, dear, dear Nietzsche, I mean, did you really, with, with this dark fascination to the will, to violent power, did you think it was going to end other than in death camps on a continent in room? All right, so Nietzsche's hope doesn't materialize. What was his fear? Hope is the Ubermensch, turns out to be a monster. His fear was, well, if we don't get the Ubermensch, we're going to get what he calls the last man. And the last man or the last man is Nietzsche's way of describing a failed development in humanity, the, the last stage of a failed humanity. And you could best describe his description of the last man as incurious, entertainment, addled couch potatoes who have no more grand ambition than to have a bit of prosaic happiness. Because Nietzsche's great fear was nihilism. People say, oh, Nietzsche was nihilist. Oh, no, he wasn't. He, he, was, he was whatever Nietzsche was, which is hard to pin down. But he wasn't that. Uh, that was his fear. And so Nietzsche saw that we were moving beyond God. That we'd already broken with that, that its vestiges were around, but it wasn't the organizing center of society any longer. And he, he's, not, he's, he's not like the modern new atheists, like Dennett and Hitchens and Dawkins and Harris and people like that. He's much more uh, cautious. And he says, well, what we're doing when we do this, we are unchaining the earth from its sun. We are sponging away the horizon. We won't know what's up or down. We're floating through a vast nothing. And so he hopes for the Ubermensch, fears that we'll get instead the last man. And I've rambled on quite a bit here. But uh, 
but we've arrived at what what Nietzsche foretold. He was he was accurate in that for sure. And and that's that is the that's the phenomenon we're in. We are in a secular age, and I'm not using that in a polemic culture war sense. I'm just saying the ethos of our age is secular, and it's no friend of faith. And to maintain faith in the age that we live in now that is fully coming of age is going to require something unprecedented from among us. Because historically speaking, a secular age is very new. And whereas the philosophy has been um, present, it hadn't really filtered down into the, you know, just the masses of humanity, but it's here now. Mm -hmm. And so to maintain any kind of faith, but I'm speaking as a Christian, to maintain Christian faith in this age is going to require an effort that probably has not been exercised before. That's the age in which we live in. Yeah. Uh, and, and I want to get it, it a little bit later. I do want to get into uh, kind of some of the, the shifts and you talk about them in the book that we can make to, you know, better um, be ministers of the gospel in this. But I do want to ask you, um, is one one of the most helpful parts, I think, for me of going through the book is you make this distinction in there between Jesus and our theology house mm-hmm. and putting, like you putting that in those words, it just clarified something for me that I hadn't really had the words to. And I would just love for you to just kind of unpack that because it it just helps whenever, whenever we are questioning, it makes it, it's just a very helpful tool in the process. Yeah, and it and it's it's not just a metaphor that it came up as a literary device. It's it's really my own experience. Yeah. I alluded earlier to going through a profound rethinking of my Christian theology, uh, beginning in the early two thousands. Now, here's the thing: um, we all, one way or another, end up with what I will call a theological house. Your theological house is the palace in the mind for Christ the King. It is simply how we think and what we say about God, Christ, and all things related. Now, we don't, for the most part, intentionally construct our theological house. We inherit a lot of it. It comes from whatever tradition that we are a part of or traditions that we belong to, the books we read, the pastors we've had, the sermons we've listened to, and just opinions that somehow we've lighted upon one way or another. And it's a, and it's a big thing. Your, your theological house is not a one-room bungalow. It is a sprawling mansion with dozens of rooms. What happens is people one day notice that something about some aspect, some room of their theological house is embarrassing, no longer habitable, the belief is no longer tenable, and you say, and, and there can be this almost weird instinct, well, I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to destroy my whole house. No, you need to remodel your house. You don't need to destroy the whole thing. You need to remodel it. And that's what I did in the beginning. Beginning in really about 2004, I began to critically reevaluate and renovate my Christian faith. But to stick with the metaphor, um, if you've ever remodeled a house while living in it, you know that that is a messy proposition, that it's, it's inconvenient, 
It's going to cost you more than you think. It's going to take longer than you think. Uh, so as I look back on my own experience, since your theological house is many, many rooms, some rooms in my theological house were really not touched much. I mean, I might have spruced them up, <laughs> you know, bought a, bought a new coffee table, <laughs> a new lamp, put a new coat of paint maybe. Other rooms required much more serious attention. And I had one wing of my theological house called eschatology. That there the term deconstruction is probably apropos. And that would be a room that wasn't merely remodeled. It was pretty much raised down to the foundation and we had to start over. Why? Because I had just inherited a deplorable eschatology. It took me a few decades to realize this is a deplorable theology, unworthy of Christ. In fact, it's just not even true. And so, but by thinking of your theology as a house of many rooms, that helps you get away from the very the fundamentalist problem of tying everything together so tightly so that it's all one thing. So that if you have to rethink your atonement theology or your eschatology or your understanding of hell or whatever, that you don't have to, you can do that compartmentally and not throw away the whole thing. Say, I'm going to hold on to my faith in Jesus but I'm going to rethink how I understand hell, how I understand atonement, how I understand eschatology, how I understand uh, the inspiration of Scripture, how I understand the problem that the Bible does not condemn slavery as an institution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, one of the things that I've seen is I've seen people, and let's be honest, what is now the, the, the popular term is deconstruction. All of a sudden it's become enormously popular, too popular, but I can't help that. Um, this is an evangelical phenomenon. Okay, let's just be honest about it. This, this, is, this is an evangelical phenomenon. And what I've seen, and I want to be, be kind about this because I don't feel any animus, but I want to just say it. I've seen people deconstruct their Christianity and yet remain, as it were, evangelical. <laughs> what? One of the problems within evangelical Christianity in the American context is it tends to be very blinkered, and it tends to think it's the only legitimate form of Christianity, so that if evangelicalism is rejected, that necessarily means you have to re reject the whole of Christian faith and tradition and history. Well, that is remaining. I've seen people forsake Christianity, but they're still evangelical. <laughs> Because they they never bothered to say, well, maybe there are answers for the problems that I'm facing in the vast, many other expressions of Christian faith that are out there. Maybe, okay, okay so I'll, I'll stop with that. But this this is and it's, in fundamentalism it's even really it's worse mm -hmm. so that you know if one bible verse can be shown not to be actually historically or scientifically correct oh well, i guess i'm an atheist now <laughs> they just go from one fundamentalism to another and that doesn't need to be yeah and i i was listening to an interview that you did uh with uh, i think it was with preston sprinkle and you know you you had mentioned in there like um like there are no really new questions, really, whatever it comes to our faith. People have wrestled with this stuff through year through years, and and they and not necessarily saying like some questions. Yes, there there might be a answer to it, but 
they present a lot of different answers uh, to that as well, which was just so challenging to me. Um, I would love for you to take us back to, you know, you said 2004, whenever you're in your early forties um, and you know, you're the, you're the leader of a church and you're going through this rethinking process, which I imagine a lot of people are going through right now too. Yeah. Can you take us back to there? Kind of talk to us about what that was like for you. What helped you? What was challenging during that time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's very easy for me to do that because it's still, it still lives in me. It was it was my other conversion. I experienced a conversion as a teenager when I was beginning to venture down some very destructive roads. I shudder to think, you know, had I not encountered Christ at 16, where I would have ended up, it probably would not have been a good place. I can tell you that. Uh, and I had this dramatic conversion. Well, I had an equally dramatic conversion uh, beginning really, it began in earnest when I was 45, or as I say, halfway to 90, because that'll scare you to say it like that. And again, I shudder to think where I would be had I not had that experience, my, my born again, again, <laughs> experience. And I, I had for, for at least five years, I'd had this growing unease that the Christianity I knew was deficient, compromised, a bit tawdry at times, and I had to find something better. And I began. And I searched, and the first thing I knew to do was just to go back and start reading church fathers and philosophy. And that helped me. That helped me ground some things. It helped me to think better. Um, But it really wasn't until in August of 2004 that I discovered the book. um, And I should tell the story because it's really dramatic. I prayed one day, and I said, God, show me what to read. Show me what to read. I mean, I prayed that because I was reading church fathers and philosophy, but I, I I was just embarrassingly ignorant of what I call the good stuff. I just, you know, if you don't know, you don't know. And so I prayed. I said, God, show me what to read. A few minutes later, my wife walks into the room, hands me a book and says, here, I think you should read this. Ooh, that's wow. You don't usually get your prayers answered quite that dramatically, uh, but it gets stranger. Perry had not read this book. It gets stranger yet. Perry. Didn't know where that book came from. I didn't. She found it in our house. I didn't buy it. She didn't buy it. Neither of us had brought it to our house. I, to this day, we don't know how it got here. But it was the book I needed. And the book was The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. And it was like a door kicked open in my mind. And one thing led to another. So I'm reading all of Willard. And I start reading all of N.T. Wright. And I start reading all of, and I mean all, I mean all. I'm reading all of Walter Brueggemann. I'm reading all of David Bentley Hart. And this is changing me. And it was exciting. It was thrilling. I was spending hours a night reading theology. And never once did it feel like work. I was was like a miner that had struck gold and couldn't pull it out of the ground fast enough. So it was a thrilling time. Perry was with me. I mean, she was reading different stuff. But she was right there with me. I wasn't bringing her along. She was just... We, we were together as we've been through life. We were just together. And on the one hand, so excited about, at last, I think we're going to find a Christianity worthy of Christ the King. Well, of course, this changes your preaching. And, you know, I, I mean, what was Word of Life? Word of Life starts off in the Jesus movement. That leads us into the charismatic movement, which was good until it wasn't. 
that led us into word of faith, religious right, all of you just you you don't make a decision to go there. You just get taken there. It's the movement. But then when I awakened at midlife and realized this is not where I want to be, I didn't begin following Jesus as a radical Jesus freak, only to end up as a Republican with a Jesus fish on his SUV. And I'm called to something more radical than that. And so I began to make change as well. You know, the women began to lose people. And we would lose, we ended up losing about a thousand people. And these were not just nameless, fame, faceless people. These were people that we had loved and done life with. And, and maybe I'd led to the Lord and baptized and married and baptized their kids and married their kids. And they were leaving, saying mean things about us. So it was this, it was this you know, to borrow a phrase from Dickens, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the best of times because of what we were discovering. I mean, we were finding the pure gold that we'd been looking for, but we were being misunderstood and often maligned, and that was very painful. So um, three things enabled me to endure that time. Number one, Perry was with me. We were together. There wasn't ever any disagreement. We were right there together. Two, uh, two great friends came into my life at that time. And I just see that as the grace of God. Uh, Bradley Jerzak, some of you may know of him, Canadian theologian, and uh, Joseph Beach, pastor of Amazing Grace Church in Denver, Colorado. And I just, you know, through Providence, I just, we, we found each other. And to have a trusted conversation partner when you're going through that kind of transition is invaluable. And that was very helpful. And the third thing was, it was around that time that I was learning how to pray in a much better way. And I was learning to pray well. And, I, and that, that enabled me to, for my spirit to stay pure and clean and forgiving and, and not become angry, hurt, and resentful. So that's what that period, and the, that period was really, in one sense, that real intense period was probably 2004 through about 10, 11. So it was a fairly lengthy time. All in all, it probably took us 10 years to transition the church. And it took us another couple of years to heal after that. And um, so it's a precious time to us that we look back now with generally with fondness, but there's no getting around the fact that it was also a very painful time. And it was. Yeah. Because um, I, I knew we were doing the right thing. I mean, I knew we were. What I didn't know was whether... Word of Life Church, you know, the work that I'd given my life to was going to survive it. Yeah. 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 It did. <laughs> yeah. It did. Yeah. Um, one, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, we've, uh, in, the, in the book, you spend a lot of time talking about uh, to, to the person who is, you know, uh, reconstructing, deconstructing their faith and dealing with the questions. Um, but we all probably, if not currently, have had or will have somebody who is deconstructing their faith. You know, it's, it's a parent, it's a friend, it's a spouse, whatever it is. And I would love for you to speak to how can we best like love the person who is currently going through the deconstruction period? Well, that's the, that's the word. You love them. And you don't, you don't try to talk them out of it. You don't say things like, well, don't do that. Because it's making perhaps you uncomfortable. Because maybe things are up in the air. Things are tenuous. Things are at risk. And there's no guarantee that this person comes through that period as a believer. I mean, there's not a guarantee. What can be guaranteed is that you're going to love them, mm-hmm. that you're going to remain their friend, that, that ultimately their faith is not predicated upon you. 
I mean, you're going to have to just entrust them to God. And, you know, how their story plays out is how it's going to play out. And your role in it is to be a friend, to be supportive, to give them love. If you are capable, I mean, you have to recognize what your own capabilities are, but if you're capable to help them maybe find a better faith and to address some of the questions that are troubling them, then you can engage in that too. But don't do it from a posture of your own fear. You're afraid that they're one day simply going to walk away. That may happen, but you have to give them the freedom to do that. And and that your friendship with them is not jeopardized by that. Um, that's especially true, especially true for anybody that's a pastor, because you know, do you love them because they're a church member, or do you love them because they're a friend, they're a human being, they're someone that is going through a real crisis of faith? So, um, and just lately, apparently, it's just happened quite recently. You're starting to hear now pastors. Kind of reacting, which is always the worst, reacting to this phenomenon of people questioning their faith, losing their faith, deconstructing their faith, all kinds of words you can use because it's experienced different ways, with some sort of either anger or belittling that is entirely unhelpful. Um, and, and, and in one sense, I was a recipient of that. I know what that's like. I know what it's like. When, when I was going through a time where I was rethinking certain aspects of my faith because I had to, and there was no getting around it, and to have people tell, and other pastors say that I was backslidden, that hurt. And, and because there was no truth to it, I was seeking more diligently than I ever had in my life. I'm just, I'm trying to find truth, and I'm really applying myself, and I'm seeking and then for someone to just dismiss it, not just dismiss it, but to attack me, to launch a polemic on me and say, you know, BZ, he's just backslidden. He's left the faith. You know, I mean, I was, I was thinking of, I remember a moment when I was, well, not a moment, but I, I was certainly rethinking how I understood atonement theory. And I was wrestling with this and, and being very serious. I mean, reading copious amounts of theological books, you know, throughout history on this topic. And I get a letter from a pastor friend, a guy that's been a friend for years. And he just, he doesn't even call me. He sends me a letter and, and, and tells me, you know, that I've departed from the faith. And he signs it off. I'm praying for your soul. You know, that, that was not helpful. Yeah. And so don't be that person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Kierkegaard. He shows up so much in your book. And I would just uh, be curious to hear what's one or two things that you've taken away from him. I know that there's a lot, but what's just uh, one or two that comes uh, to mind? The K-Man is, is one of the big influences in my life. And I didn't know that it was going to happen, that it was going to be such. Um, I, I had actually, believe it or not, I had read some Kierkegaard as a teenager. Uh, I'd found some Kierkegaard books on my dad's bookshelf. He was learned and well-read. He was a judge. And I read some and I resonated with it. But then encountering Christ and the world I was in, you know, you may, you, you may 
find this surprising, but a lot of charismatic pastors don't read Kierkegaard. <laughs> and uh, and then then in 2004, because everything happened in 2004. That's a that's a saying that Perry and I have. A friend of mine, I'll tell you his name. Some some people will know him. Jason Upton, who is a Christian musician, and he's a friend. He's been a friend for a long time. Um, he'd he'd been at our church and he'd done a concert, and we were him and his band, we were all hanging out afterwards. We were in my study, and there's just a lot of conversations going on. There's a number of people there, and he just wrote on a piece, a, note, a notepad sitting on my desk. He just wrote two words. And I didn't even see him write it then. He just wrote Kierkegaard, provocations. That's all. I, knew, I, I saw him write, but I didn't even look at it at the moment. The next morning I saw that. And it's a book. It's, it's a, and I just had dinner with the, with the author. I mean, it's, it's Kierkegaard, but it's, it's, it's provocations. I think sometimes like the spiritual writings of Soren Kierkegaard. And I've read a lot of other stuff since then, but that distillation of his spiritual writings is very formative. And it's from Kierkegaard that we get, well, we get the phrase, we usually say the leap of faith. It's actually a leap to faith. And I got from Kierkegaard the necessity to take responsibility for your life. This is, this is where Kierkegaard and Nietzsche are so similar. They didn't influence one another. Kierkegaard never heard of Nietzsche. Nietzsche probably heard of Kierkegaard but hadn't read him. But they're so similar, but they arrive at different conclusions. But they're, both of them share this critique of what Kierkegaard calls the crowd and what Nietzsche generally calls the herd. And they were critical of just going along with mass groupthink. They said, no, you have to take – that's why they're called existentialists. They wouldn't have understood that term or they wouldn't have – thought on themselves as that necessarily, but they get labeled that. The two most important existentialist philosophers, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. And because they both perceived that in the great history of philosophy, going all the way back, I mean, you can go, let's, say, let's say Plato or Socrates forward, that what gets left out is your own experience. They're thinking about everything but their own self, their own experience within the world. They're, they're trying to, they're, they're, through philosophy, they're trying to arrive at truth, but they've, they've, as it were, attempted to step outside of the project as if they were going to be purely objective. And Kierkegaard says, no, 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 all truth inheres in subjectivity. And it's the only truth that matters is the truth that matters to you. And you can't just be dispassionate about it. You've got to actually care and, and hurl yourself into this as if your life depended upon it. That, that's the kind of stuff from Kierkegaard that really helped me. I mean, I could go, I mean, there's so much. I go on and on and on, but that would be hours and, <laughs> and we, could, yeah. we don't have time for that. But, but Kierkegaard, along with another guy that's yeah. described as an existentialist, not as a philosopher, but as a novelist, is Dostoevsky. And he also has been a huge, huge influence on me theologically. So Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky, very important figures in my life. Yeah, I would love to hear about Dostoevsky. What, what's something that you've taken away from him? Mm, well, I don't, I don't know that there's a book that has influenced me more theologically than his novel, The Brothers Karamazov. It's a novel. Uh, but it's also a theological masterpiece. 
I describe it often as one of the greatest theology books ever written, disguised as the greatest novel ever written. I, I, I work on that. I work from that somewhat in, in especially the, 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 uh, the grand inquisitor parable that's within that book. He's dealing with the biggest, this is actually a book on can you maintain faith in a secular age? I mean, that's what's going on in the novel. Now, it's disguised as a petricidal murder mystery that you have these three brothers, the brothers Karamazov, Dmitri, the kind of sensualist military officer, Ivan, the young intellectual college student atheist, and Aloysia, the spiritual uh, novice monk, the three brothers, and their, their father has been murdered, and uh, they are all suspected, you know, they all have their motives, and so I won't spoil the novel, but uh, that, that's, that's the novelistic structure, but all the way through are these issues of how do you maintain faith in an age where it's increasingly secular and given to unbelief. And um, in, the, in the portion of the book where Ivan, the, the atheist brother, is attacking the faith of his younger Christian brother, Aloysia, the book was published in serial form, which was very typical then. So, you know, you'd have a new installment each week, you know, and people are reading it in magazines. And Dostoevsky's Christian friends were a little bit scandalized. He said, man, you, you really attacked Christianity. <laughs> he said, well, yeah, I'm going to be, he said, he said, yeah, I did. He said, in fact, he said, I, I mounted the most formidable attack against Christianity that I, that I know of. I did a better job than all of than, than all the rest of them, you know, and he, he's doing this as a believer. And they said, well, aren't you afraid that you're going to destroy people's faith? He said, just, I'm not done yet. You know, I have more to say in this book. There'll be other characters that'll show up, particularly Elder Zosima. And so now if if people, because I, I become a I become a unintended evangelist for Dostoevsky. I know this happens. It's happened a lot. And so people are going to hear this and they're going, well, I got to read that book. Well, probably you do. But let me give two bits of advice because I, I want to help you here, not hurt you. One, read it in the correct translation. And that is the Pavir Valakonsky, husband and wife couple, believers. Uh, Constant Garnet, who's kind of the, the, the 19th century English translator, not a believer, and, and, and at times was downplaying uh, some of the real Christian aspects of the novel. So read it in the Pavir Valakonsky translation. That's much newer. It's award-winning translation. Great. And, uh, and then just let... Let the story be, be patient. Don't go, you know, BZ thinks this is like full of great theology. I got to find it. Don't, don't do that. Just let the story be told. Read it slowly. It's long. It's going to take you a long time. It's like 900 pages, but it's one of the most important books I've ever, it's one of the most, it's one of the top five most important books in my life for sure. Wow. Maybe, maybe the second, maybe, you know, we'll go with Bible and then Brothers K. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to check that out. Um, you know, you, you were mentioning um, earlier, talking about um, we're living in a more secu secular age. And one thing that I want to make sure I ask you about is what are some of the shifts that like either as the church or as, you know, leaders in the church or even just as followers of Jesus, 
that we need to make in order to um, in order to live and and th- and thrive in this. Yeah. Well, faith was sustained for good or ill, for better or worse, throughout most of the history of the church through just a presumption of traditional authority. I am not one, this is where I'm not going to be like a modern man. I'm not one who thinks that's all necessarily bad. In one sense, modernity is nothing but a tradition of critiquing all other traditions, lacking the self-awareness that it is simply a tradition of critiquing all other traditions, and as such is a rather impoverished tradition. Uh, that being said, that isn't, we're not going to change that. And so faith is not going to be passed on nor sustained purely by traditional authority or the authority of tradition. It's going to be sustained by an experience, by, which is really where it should be founded anyway. And so if we're going to help people as pastors and leaders, we have to maybe pastor them in the direction of, of how they can have their own experience in God, which in modernity we've been conditioned to be suspect of. But the scriptures know nothing of that. And if there's anything set forth as normative in the scriptures, it is that you can experience God and that you should expect to be able to experience God. And I talk about this in the what I call the second half of the book. It's actually less, it's, it's toward the end, but it's still the second half where I shift toward founding your, well, I I begin with the quote from German Catholic theologian, Karl Rahner, who in 1971 said the Christian of the future will be a mystic. That is someone who's experienced something or they will cease to be anything at all. I think that was a, that was, that was as prescient as Nietzsche's madman parable. When Karl Rahner says that in 1971, he's right on. And I would say, that what Karl Rahner called the future in 1971, we call today. That Karl Rahner's imagined future is fully right, and that the Christian of today is going to be a mystic. That is, don't let that term throw you off. It doesn't mean, you know, New Age occultism. It just means someone who seeks and at some level attains an experience within the mystery of God. The Christian of today is going to be a mystic, or there's going to deconstruct down to nothing. And I think that's really true. I don't find that as threatening. I just, I think that's an analysis of the reality. And the good news is, as a human being, we are created to be able to experience God. Fish are created to swim, birds are created to fly, and humans are created to experience God. Yeah. Would you mind like teasing that out a little bit more? Because as you, as you said, like mystic just for it, it can have some baggage to it depending on you know your tradition and stuff like that but talk to me about like what that looks like yeah it can have some baggage but but i couldn't find a word that had less baggage. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess that's true for all words for all most words, words isn't it yeah yeah i mean if i if i just say we need to be spiritual that's just so worn out it, it doesn't mean anything anymore yeah uh, so I, I opted for Carl Rahner's word. I mean, he didn't invent the word, of course, but his application of it. Um, see, what happened with modernity, with discourse and method publication by Rene Descartes in 1638, is that 
empiricism came to dominate everything about how we investigate the phenomenon of being. I'm not opposed to it. You can do a lot of good science within the empirical method, but you're not going to exhaust the possibilities of what it means to exist within the phenomenon of being through empiricism, and you're certainly not going to encounter God that way. Uh, God is not going to be found in a telescope or a microscope or some other scientific instrument. This is the folly of pop apologetics that try to, quote, prove the existence of God. You can't. It's not going to work that way. Uh, you'll disprove the existence of God if you maintain that God must be an object that is verifiable in the empirical sense somewhere in the universe. You know, go out to Neptune, turn left, you can't miss him, he's right up. That's You're not going to find God that way. But the human being created in the image of God is, as far as I know here, this unique being that has the capacity to hear from God, experience God, enter into the love of God, and to love God and be loved by God and be aware of that, cognizant of that. That is the spiritual life that we are invited into. Um, the church has had moments when it was very good in teaching these kind of practices that facilitate that. We have become less so over the last 500 years. And, and the church wants to justify its own existence by being, quote, relevant or practical, and, uh, and Lord, save your church from practical sermons. Uh, what we need is a more sacramental church, a more mystical church, a church that offers what not, no other institution in the world can offer, and that is how to have an experience with the God revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, this actually is shouldn't be viewed as controversial. This was at one point the pastoral task. I mean, the most important thing I do as a pastor, you know what it is? I teach people how to pray because that's the primary venue in which you're going to experience God. But if you don't, I mean, look, I don't know too many pastors that teach their congregation how to pray. They say, you know, they just, they'll say something like this, just talk to God. That's not enough. That's, I mean, it's, no, there, there's a whole rich tradition that, that should inform us how to go about engaging God in what we call prayer. And so this, this is the poverty that we are in right now. And I don't, I, this will sound a bit harsh. I don't hear me saying this tenderly. We have, we have a nation of pastors who, first of all, don't know how to pray and much less know how to teach other people how to pray. So what they do is they try to teach people how to vote. <laughs> Lord save us. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's one other thing that I want to ask you about, and it even just goes uh, to your point, but this part uh, about the mysticism was very, uh, um, it, it very much stood out to me. You have this quote in there and you say, you're in the book and you say, you know, academic theology and spiritual mysticism do not need to be pitted against each other. They are in fact, entirely compatible or compatible. Would you mind teasing that out a little bit? Yeah. The best theologians are the ones that pray. The best theologians are the ones that have their own experience. We've got, in fact, I was just discussing with our leadership team this morning. How many, and this don't miss, uh, well, I'm just going to say what I was going to say. How many of, how many theologians that I know personally, who their roots are in a charismatic or Pentecostal upbringing, 
Eugene Peterson, Miroslav Volf, the current Pope, you know, Pope Francis. Uh, theology must not be purely an academic exercise. Theologians need to know what it is to kneel. Theologians need to know what it is to say, oh, God. Oh, is that word of subjectivity. Oh, God. Um, if, if a theologian isn't a man or a woman of prayer, then, then I just want to say this kindly, but truthfully, I'm not very interested. I, I don't want a theologian that just looks at God as if they are looking at a lion at the zoo behind the cage. You've got to get in the cage with the lion. And that's part of what we do in prayer is we actually get in the cage with the real life Aslan. And that's, can you understand? There's a difference between if I'm looking at a lion and there's bars and the bars are taken away. Those are two different, <laughs> two different experiences. Yeah. And we should encounter God without the so-called bars of academic objectivity. I'm all for the disciplines of learning the biblical languages and rigorous study and knowing what has already been said in historical theology. But also enter the cage, yeah. pray, get on your knees, say, God, speak to me. God, show me where I need to repent. And uh, that's, that's, I'm talking like, that's what I mean. I mean, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that we've covered a lot. Is there anything that we haven't mentioned that's maybe just top of mind that you want to make sure that we talk about? Oh, you know, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I like the book. I'm happy with the book. I feel yeah. good about the book. I felt like I, uh, that I accomplished what I set out to do. Um, any interview I give on the book is way, the book is way better. I'll put it that way. <laughs> uh, I suppose if I could be as articulate as I want to be every time I talk on these subjects, I wouldn't have needed to, to have written the book. I needed to write the book because I needed to find the right words to say to the right people that I'm trying to assist. Yeah. And so I feel good about the book. I think it accomplished that. Yeah. Well, I know that people are going to want to get the book and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Yeah, you know, I'm easy to find because I have an unusual name. It's Brian Zahn, Z-A-H-N-D. Just Google me and you'll find I'm on Twitter quite actively, a little bit on Instagram, somewhat on Facebook. I have a blog site, although who blogs anymore? <laughs> <laughs> BrianZahn.com. You'll also find... Uh, You'll also find our services on YouTube and all that. You'll also find cranks saying that I'm a heretic on YouTube. Uh, I'll let you be the judge of that, but I don't think they're correct. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, Brian, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks for doing the work and just sharing it with us as well. Thank you, Caleb. So coming out of that conversation with Brian, there's really three things that uh, stood out to me. Uh, so far, at least some of the stuff that I'm thinking about right now. One of the things is, you know, we were talking before uh, the recording started and, you know, I, I just mentioned to him, you know, I loved how he, how he included, you know, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, um, which I, I hadn't read a lot of their uh, stuff 
uh, most my primary interaction with them has been, you know, quotes and books and stuff like that. And probably the most I've been exposed to him is in Brian's book there. And I just said, I really appreciate it. And what I love that he said is he said, you know, I really didn't, I really didn't, you know, investigate or read them for the book. I read them because that's, they're just part of my life journey, which, you know, he mentioned in the episode. And I absolutely love that of, of seeing how the work that God has done in his life has translated into the work of art that he has created. It's such as in the form of this book when everything's on fire. Now, the, the other thing, and one of the things that I uh, learned is, you know, the, the quote, you know, God is dead from Nietzsche. I had never really heard the context around that as well. And so to hear the full story, you know, as Brian mentioned in there, just added even greater perspective um, just to what I didn't really know about. And it, it, and it adds, uh, it helps me better understand it. And like it, it hits a whole lot harder as well. And the final thing is I realized that I got a whole lot more reading to do. Um, I got so many book re- recommendations from, uh, from this conversation, probably, probably one of the most that I've ever gotten um, from an interview. And I, and I love that so much. And so, you know, as I, uh, as I read that stuff, that stuff will trickle out into some of the stuff that I'm creating and some of the, you know, the library episodes that I do all throughout, um, throughout the year as well. So. Those are some of my takeaways. I would love to hear from you as well. Some of the things that you took away from this conversation, or if you just find yourself going through a time of um, deconstruction or questioning, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me is learners corner podcast at gmail.com. Or if you have other stuff that you would love us to cover on the podcast or people that you would love to learn from, please hit me up there as well. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure that you leave a reading and or leave a reading, leave a rating and write a review on Apple Podcasts. That would mean a lot. Hit subscribe or follow on whatever podcast player you use, and you'll never miss a single episode as well. And I think that's all that I have for today. Thanks to Garrett Oler for doing that in this podcast. Thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Uh, Thank you for Brian for being on the podcast and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. My name is Caleb Mason and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.